This episode of Reconcilable Differences is sponsored in part by the Nuisance Committee. Please stay tuned after the show for a special message about the 2016 election. Good evening. What is your avatar today? Uh, the great singer-songwriter, Mr. Paul hmm. Williams. I was going to say, it looks like someone from Eight is Enough. Oh, he's got that Nicholas Hammond hair a little bit. I think I never had it. I had an Airsats bowl-like haircut that my mom visited upon me. My, I, was, I was a home haircut kid for a lot of childhood. Was that the Floby? <laughs> That's before my time, or after my time, I mean. Um, yeah, the Floby. That was uh, that was very popular on the cable TV. You hook it up to your vacuum. I guess it's got it's like an abattoir for your head, mm-hmm. and then the vacuum sucks up your hair and it flawlessly uh, cuts it. I'm, I'm I, I just I can't even imagine that. Yeah, I'm trying to think of what I never knew anyone who had one of those in real life. So the vacuum pulls your hair into it, presumably to pull your pin straight blonde hair, as in the commercial, into. <laughs> Into the mechanism, so your hair can only go in so far. So you can control the length by saying, look, there's a tube, and it's this long, and the vacuum pulls your hair into it. And at the end of the tube, there's some kind of terrible dune sandworm-type mouth that (laughs) slices off the ends of your hair and what I'm sure is a beautiful, perfect, and surgical cut. Uh, (sighs) But more likely, it probably feels like it's yanking the hairs out of your head as it tries to cut off the ends of them. And then if you just want to have all the same length hair over your entire head, uh, this is the, the device for you. I don't think I don't think that's how haircuts work. No, it is not. It's not how haircuts Even in the 70s, it's not how haircuts worked. But there's, there's so many things about it that, and now that I'm a little bit older and I've thought about these things, so many things about it are wrong. Like you said, it does assume, you know, straw-like straight white people hair. But I mean, maybe you could do it for a dog. But but you think uh, about the, the likely build quality of an as seen on TV cutting device, right? It's just yeah, like it's just like a hair pulling vacuum. <laughs> I think I'd love to talk to somebody who was subjected to one of these. Yeah, the, the, the only the only closest I know is that my brother cuts his kid's hair by himself, and uh, it's not a good idea. Oh. Well, you know, it's one of those fraught things where I think it's not nearly as simple as it looks. And if you try, it's, it's nope. you know, okay, so you're an artist. You know that uh, drawing on the right side of the brain stuff, where like, you know, like me, the one reason I am a terrible failed illustrator and drawer of things is that I, I do that total left brain thing where I, if I had to describe it, it would be I'm drawing what I think this thing looks like. But that's not really how you draw things. And in this case, like, you have an idea of what a haircut looks like. Oh, buddy. Like, just cutting it to look like what you think it should look like. Oh, that that is perilous. It's uh, patented in 1986 by Rick E. Hunts, which sounds like a fake name. Mm-hmm. Oh, he's a California carpenter, John. <laughs> well, that's all you need. <laughs> and I think it works. I think the way it works is you, you t- attach it to your standard vacuum tube. There's the, the housing that has the blades, however the blades work. And then I think a la clippers, you put various plastic dingai, you attach them to that to get the length of hair you theoretically Mm -hmm. want to have. It's like a, it's like a device from the Jetsons come to life, you know, like a thing that you can tell, you know, haha, isn't that funny? Would never actually work, but then someone made it. It sold it to people. Two million sold by the year 2000. 
ever get involved in that? Did you ever get involved in buying stuff like off uh, TV commercials and stuff like that? No. You ever think, do like Columbia House or anything like that? Well, no, I did do that. Not off TV, but I did. I think most of the, the crap I bought was from magazines. So I did join whatever the thing was that you got like 10 free CDs. We talked about this, I think, on a past episode. Or I've talked about it anyway, about how I got into buying my own music because of that. Like, hey, get 20 free CDs if you sign up for Columbia House, whatever. Like, that's yeah. how I started my music collection with that um, very late in life. And other stuff I can, I don't remember what specifically it was, but it's the equivalent of the getting sucked into a scam thing. It would be ads at the back of magazines that are like, order this thing, poorly printed in a tiny postage stamp size square, and then wait like four to six weeks. And it would like, you'd just be waiting so long that you'd even forget you ordered it. Or you'd be waiting and that four to six weeks would feel like seven years of your life. And it would come, it would be a piece of crap and you'd be disappointed. That's, that's, I feel like that was a foundational experience of my childhood getting excited ordering things waiting a really 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 long time and then when they come realizing they're crap yeah i think in some part of my brain i knew enough not to buy stuff out of comic books um i had a my my i've told you about my best pal john when i was a kid the lord of the rings kid x-men kid and he actually had bought sea monkeys i'd never i mean i only knew sea monkeys from the photograph that shows them carrying briefcases and making breakfast and and he's like, I, I, I got this, and it's not what it is. I was like, well, what is it? He goes, it's it's brine shrimp. I was like, what is, what's brine shrimp? It's like, it's a, I guess you get like a packet of like eggs, I guess. You put it in water, and it turns into brine shrimp, which is like a tiny, disappointing seahorse. <laughs> Imagine that. Yeah, they, they don't even have little crowns on their heads. They don't have crowns, they don't have briefcases, and they, they damn sure aren't going to make any kind of breakfast, we understand yeah. It's almost like a, a flea circus would be more exciting because at least that's like a little, you know, mechanized toy. This is this is worse. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't do too much of that. As you know, the, the greatest one of those I ever got because, you know, you do frequently would be things like you send in so many box tops from Syria, you wait six to eight weeks, and then the thing arrives. And of course, you know, whatever, it was usually some kind of silly premium. I, I won't recount it in detail, but I'll just say whenever that day was in late 1977 that I got a little brown cardboard box in the mail from Kenner. And I, you know, I'm glad my daughter was born and stuff. I don't know <laughs> if I've ever been quite so happy as when I opened it up and my four Star Wars figures arrived. The original, original, which I still have, four Star Wars characters. I thought it was going to be the story of you getting the box that just has, like, the IOU in it. <laughs> like, if you because if you ordered the, the figures early, they didn't have them, and you would just get a cardboard thing that says, you will have these things soon. Did you get that, or did you immediately get the, the dolls? Boy, I you know, I, I don't remember, but that, that does sound like something that would happen to me. Because <laughs> yeah, they didn't make enough of them, so they knew people wanted to buy them, and they wanted to, they wanted to sell them something, and so they would just give them, like, a, essentially a voucher. Uh, and I think, I don't know, I'm, I have a vague memory of this. I, I got them as well, but... I didn't, if the voucher was involved, I didn't know because I was too young to deal with that. And I remember getting them, but I think they were all uh, individually wrapped for Christmas or something and not not like you have like, hmm. where you get a box in the mail, open it up, and you get the figures. I, I feel like they were in, this has got to be wrong, but I feel like I remember them being in like a little tray. And I think it was about, the box was about the size of a big paperback. And I opened it up and it was, help me out, Luke, Chewbacca, R2-D2, and I think Leia. And they were so cool. Leia, like, she had a cool cape. 
you know, Luke had the, <laughs> a had piece, the uh, piece of vinyl with two holes cut in it. But it was so cool. Oh, and, I, you know, I was uh, I was young then, but I was old enough to be very disappointed in those times. <laughs> you wanted more articulation. <laughs> I mean, the lightsaber. Come on, the lightsabers. They First of all, they were not the right length. Second of all, they were not the right thickness. Third of all, there's one thing we know about lightsabers, that they are essentially the same thickness, roughly, from top to bottom. These were a tube, and then midway through, the t- a skinnier tube would come out of it. Like, it was just a right, it was like a layer cake, like a, like an elongated wedding cake. Th- what? Lightsabers aren't like that. This was so unlike, the only thing that made it remotely like a lightsaber was that it was a colored thing that poked out of the hand area. Worse, and worse the, and, the, and and very very famously, uh, so yeah, you get this. There's a little notch, and a, there's a slot in their arm. You'd move the little notch, and then the primary tube would come out. And then out of that came what I don't know if science has ever officially documented this. It's got to be the most fragile thing that has ever been put on a child's toy. A little, it's 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 barely even like a string. You wouldn't use this thing as a toothpick. The thing that extends out of there was it was like it was like a the antenna the antenna of a very young crustacean maybe a brine shrimp and they uniformly almost all broke off i only i i still have believe it or not even with my kid playing with them i still have most of my tiny uh lightsabers but they were very disappointed because a lightsaber tapers just slightly i guess i don't know very disappointing it, some of them in the in the in the more recent star wars films do taper a little bit in the original trilogy they were pretty consistently but but anyway certainly there was nothing like what we got out of the thing where it was just like night and day a thick portion and then a thin portion and again there was also the wrong length and sticking out at a useless angle for sword fighting because they didn't have elbows so if you wanted to make luke fight darth vader the angles they they had to put their arms like heil hitler to be making making their lightsabers touch each other like they're making one of those things when like the queen comes in the room and everybody holds their sword like you know at like a forty five yeah, degree mean, you, angle. You could have a, like a wedding if you lined them all up and they would cross swords and the the bride and the groom would walk underneath it. Like it, it just seemed like such a gimme. Like I understand that they got uh, tied up with the idea of extending the lightsaber, which is an exciting thing, but they didn't pull it off. And it's not as fun if they like they could make clear plastic later, like in, in the twelve inch figures, they had clear plastic lightsabers that were that were just wonderful. They they looked as you know, as good as you can imagine a non light up lightsaber looking. It was simple. Clear plastic for the 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 light part of it and then a nice looking handle and it went in their hand normally. I don't know. Very disappointing. And the cape like I said, the capes, those little vinyl wraparound things, they weren't floppy like capes. They were just sharp edge not rigid but they were yeah exactly creases they just didn't they they got better like the as time went on the figures got better the empire figures are way better i think if only because the outfits were more faithfully rendered and the characters faces look a little bit more like the characters very disappointing the ships are much better i have good memories of the ship i have good memories of popping the uh the wings off the tie fighter and stuff that was a good feature i had the x-wing with R2-D2 that would make a noise when you pressed it. Yep. Um, it was okay. I, I feel like the single best thing in the whole collection was Han's blaster, which which really, 
I, maybe I'm remembering this too fondly, but I, I didn't have one. My friend had one, and it felt like a pistol. It was it was like heavy. It was it was cool. It really looked like a blaster to me. I thought you were talking about the uh, the action figures blaster, as you know, my, my mother which is always took away lost. The took away all What's the that? Guns from the, my mother took away all the guns from the toys. Oh right, hippie mom. Yep. But you know, just as well, you would have lost it in a day anyway. Eh, I'm pretty good about keeping track of those things. Really? If, of course. Who am I talking if to? If she here? could have taken away the lightsaber, she would have. But it was jammed in there, you know. See, at that point, hippie mom, not not to just cast an aspersion, but if you want to raise an enlightened child, you have to kind of weigh, right? It's like declawing a cat. It's it's not nice to the cat. Do you really want to cut off part of Luke's arm, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, if I've asked you this, feel free to pass. In your recollection, specifically, so you liked model cars and stuff. You like, I think you like planes. But do you have a memory of what was your favorite I guess maybe in terms of like authenticity, build quality. Like, what was your favorite action figure you ever had, hmm. or had exposure to? I definitely did like my twelve-inch Star Wars things. Uh, they were very impressive. They looked much more right. Problem is, they were so big, they weren't the right scale with a lot of other things. I think probably my twelve-inch Boba Fett was my favorite. If you can put that in, this, in that category, because action figures generally disappointing like gi joe had more articulation and that was good um i didn't have a lot of gi joes because they were too military my my friends did and those those were pretty impressive in terms of how many different joints and everything they had on them so you could do interesting things with them and put them in cool fighting poses but i'm gonna say my my 12 inch uh boba fett is probably my best one because it looked the most like the thing in the movie uh the proportions are more or less correct it had a real cape on it uh and boba fett is really cool I'm just trying to find the right one. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, I mean, he was he was so cool, and his outfit was so cool. That weird, like, asymmetrical torn up cape. He was awesome. My friend, again, my friend John, he was more into. I had some of the like inexpensive little plastic micronauts, which were pretty cool. But he had what's it, Baron Carza? Do you remember Baron Carza? He was like, he was like cast metal. And had lots of joints, and he like you could you could you could knock somebody out with one of these things. It was so cool, and I think he shot like a rocket or something like that. I don't know anything about Micronauts other than Jason Snell loves them. He he, he seems a little fixated on them. Mm-hmm. It seems like it has like kind of a special place for him. Hmm, Baron Carza. Oh yeah, and there's his horse. I remember that horse. You can make him into the horse. <laughs> Man, <any> horse. <laughs> Child's a very disappointing thing, let's be honest. Uh, they've come a long way, though. Like, my son's small, like, Kenner action figure size Boba Fett is amazing. Like, it's, it, um, I just Google for one now, and it's uh, $42. Anyway, <laughs> it's a tiny little thing, but it's got lots of points of articulation. You can put him into a pose that looks like a pose from the movie. He's all, like, weathered looking. His cape is made of real cloth, and it's off at an angle like the real one. It's not just behind him. It's just sitting up on oh, a shelf. Oh, yeah. It, it looks better than my 12-inch figure, and this is just, like, a simple whatever size they call this, the little the little tiny one. Like the 4-inch-ish ones. Yeah. This is pretty – this is – wow, he's pretty cool looking. Yeah. He's but it's also funny because, like, you, you, you get into that weird nerd thing of – if I could use the word nerd, John. But you get into that funny thing of, like, well, is this really – a toy or is this more of a marketing collectible and i think that you could make a case for saying like despite all the playsets and stuff like you could play with these star wars guys but like you wouldn't you don't play with them the same way you would play with like an articulated figure because it's important like if you're throwing a spear or shooting a gun or climbing something you want their arms to do stuff other than just be perfectly rigid 
Yeah, well, I mean, you use your imagination and you, and you, and you work it out. But I, I feel like the, the four-inch ones, even the very articular ones, they're like G.I. Joe's. They had joints everywhere, but you'd still play with them. You'd still put them into all the different poses. It was important for them to be able to get into the vehicles because they had stiff little arm and legs. You couldn't even seat them in the vehicles or put them on the motorcycles or whatever, you know? $3 in 1978. I remember these feeling very costly at the time. I think they were $3 each for the, like, four inch ones and that would be how much i'm not very good with wolfram alpha i bet that's a lot what 79 dollars? <laughs> that doesn't seem right <laughs> i think i did something wrong you try 1878 i need to check my build <laughs> yeah, I, I remember the kenner star wars figures was the first moment that i that i noticed that other kids parents had more money yeah. Oh, you really see it. Eleven dollars. Eleven dollars thirty one cents in two thousand sixteen dollars. So like you, you could tell it's the kids who had the Darth Vader head or C three PO head. You know, uh, cases. The case, right? Yeah. Because that meant you had all of them probably because the case would be filled. And later it was the kids who had the big ad at. Right. Oh sure, sure, and sure. So I, I had Star Wars toys, but like I didn't have all the action figures, and I didn't have the big Darth Vader head case filled with all the action figures, and I sure as hell didn't have an ad at. Yeah. Yeah. So it's all a hierarchy of, of white suburbia. Yeah, the Death Star sucked. It was so late. Oh yeah, the Death Star was. I did have that. Death Star was the worst. It was the worst. worst. It was. It was just. It was mostly cardboard and a little bit of plastic foam, and the then foam chunks, foam garbage. Really, no, foam? it was terrible. And it, like it, it evoked nothing of the Death Star internally or externally. Oh no, and um, it's <laughs> it's sort of like the Lego the Lego Death Star. <laughs> That you're yeah, not a fan of, no. but this is this was also you know there's this this experience I now think of as the canonical, like Dan Morin going to see Phantom Menace, right? Mm-hmm. That, for some reason that always sticks with mm-hmm. me. We were like this this was great, right? Like this was great, and it was a, it was a, a pretty Christmas good Dan Morin impression. That <laughs> um, was on Echo, and so I um, I got this for Christmas, and I was pumping myself up, man. Like, oh, this is great, right? I put it together, and it's, oh, you can go down and fall down through the floor and stuff. That's it sucked. Uh, last Star Wars question, unless you have more follow up on Star Wars, was um, at the time Empire came out. Did you did you as you walked out of the theater or in the time intervening time after? Did you know at the time that you liked Empire? better than uh the first one um probably not i will yeah i think i knew i liked it better than the first one but i think after i saw jedi i think that one was my favorite at that time just because mm-hmm. i loved i loved how it ended like it, it's i wasn't old enough to be cynical and be like there's no way they can put a capper on this thing but in some way i must have realized the difficulty of satisfactorily tying up this super important movie series and i just really liked the way it ended and it was just such a a fun movie and it was also like i appreciated that it was more accomplished in terms of the special effects they had ramped everything up from the previous movie and you know so i think jedi was my favorite when i was walking out of the theater for that empire i think i still liked it better than the first one because i really really like yoda um Mm -hmm. and i I like the whole angle but i think i was concerned I was concerned about Luke and the mm-hmm. Rebels because they they didn't do well in this movie, and I think that concern overwhelmed. You know, I didn't I didn't come out of the movie and be like, "Oh, that's this is going to be my favorite Star Wars movie forever." It was only you know after seeing Jedi and, and considering that my favorite, and then like in the you know days and months following that, as I started to get older and appreciate the sophistication. Uh, and Jedi wasn't ahead by leaps and bounds, 
Um, but I, I was not anti Ewok when I saw Jedi. Let's put it that way. I thought that mm-hmm. was a fun little. I was the right age for Ewoks, basically. You were, you were probably like thirteen, fourteen then, right? No, what year was uh was? Oh, wait, you're no, you're way younger than 83? me. Eighty-three. I yeah. was, I was like nine. Mm, Jiminy, sorry. Mm. Yeah, I remember seeing it with my girlfriend. Oh gosh! But you had a girlfriend when you were nine. So that doesn't tell us anything. No, I had I had little friends. I had I had little friends. I wouldn't call it a girlfriend. Well, you what your mom called them? Your little friends? My little friends, of course, that's what she called them. We would have we would have speculative dates. We would plan dates. We would talk about what we would do if we went on a date, mm-hmm. and we would we would go over it over and over like like a heist. <laughs> we're gonna go to the mall. We're gonna go. To we York's. don't know what we're stealing. But... <laughs> we're gonna go to the mall. We're gonna go to York Steakhouse. We're gonna go through the line. I know what I'm getting for dessert. We had it all worked out. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> Aim high. <laughs> this episode of Reconcilable Differences is brought to you in part by HelpSpot. You can learn more about HelpSpot right now by going to helpspot.com slash diffs, that's D-I-F-F-S, and start a free trial today. If you deal with any kind of customer support, you need HelpSpot because HelpSpot is the most comprehensive and flexible help desk software around. With HelpSpot, you can let your customers reach you however they choose, email, web, phone, whatever works. HelpSpot will be the central place for all of your customer support needs. You can turn disjointed email exchanges into meaningful conversations with your customers, get a quick view of any trends relating to your support requests, and that includes real-time reporting so you can see exactly what's happening right now. HelpSpot can host everything for you, but you can also run HelpSpot on your own servers. You get source code access for custom branding, direct SQL access to write custom reports, and extensive APIs and Zapier integration for connecting to your other business systems. HelpSpot is the best value in customer service, and they are committed to giving you unrivaled value for your hard-earned money. And put simply, this means uncomplicated pricing, includes everything you need for your help desk. With HelpSpot, you're going to get unlimited tickets, mailboxes, custom fields, reports, and knowledge bases, all for one simple price with no hidden extras or complicated tiers, because let's be honest, nobody likes complicated tiers. HelpSpot is easily to manage companies to get a few requests a day, all the way up to enterprise clients with 500 email inboxes. I can't even imagine that. Receiving millions of support emails. Oh, this is just giving me a... So the sweat's thinking about it. Thank you, HelpSpot. No matter where you are, how big you grow, they will be there to help lighten the burden of customer support. HelpSpot's current customers include startups and Fortune 500 companies, IT departments, call centers, customer service groups across every industry, including software, banking, healthcare, education, transportation, and e-commerce. HelpSpot is not a flash-in-the-pan company. They've been doing this for over 12 years now. They're going to be there when you need them. HelpSpot is free for up to three users and super inexpensive for larger teams. Now, here's the thing. You're going to get 10% off for life when you use the code DIFFS, that's D-I-F-F-S, when you sign up. So please go now. Go to HelpSpot.com slash DIFFS to start a trial today or sign up for a free one-on-one demo to learn more about how HelpSpot can serve your support team. Our thanks to HelpSpot for supporting Reconcilable Differences and all of Relay FM. I don't know what we got this week. Oh, I know, I know. I have to redo the. I have to make it up to Casper. Oh my god! Did you catch that last week? What about the Casper ad? Did you catch my flub? Oh, uh, the fifty percent off. Can't believe I did that. Well, whatever, whatever it takes to get those people through the door. Mm. You pronounce a lot of words in interesting ways. That's not accurate. Fifty, fifteen. 
You say many, many things in strange ways. I do not. No, that's not accurate, John Syracuse. So you, you, can, you can't even hear it. can't even hear it. Well, no, I can't. And the other thing is, and I'm becoming more and more aware of this, is sometimes, you know, my mouth and my brain are not always in sync. And I've said this before, but I do this new thing. I heard myself doing it on Back to Work today, where I say the exact opposite of what I meant to say. Yeah, that because I get some part of, well, do you ever do that? Yeah, you don't do time. that, do you? Yeah, you're correct. And sometimes they can fix it in the editing. But no, what I just said was I intentionally said, uh, like Hershey's Miniatures, you say mm-hmm. many, many things. That's what I said. I said, like, and what I'm thinking in my head, I'm saying M-I-N-I, space, M-I-N-I, many, many things. But you just many, went like right, many things. You just went right through it, because to you, I didn't say anything weird. You didn't catch me making fun of how you say many. You just heard it as many. <sighs> Gaslight. You're gaslighting me. No. Gaslighting me. It's, 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 it's many and many. <laughs> it's, yeah. Many. <laughs> one of my, I feel like one of my greatest accomplishments in life is making this, this specific... Uh, vowel sound for whatever, wherever it is, Midwest or whatever, a thing on the Flophouse by just uh, unrelentingly being annoying about Dan's accent for so many years. And now I just sit back and now, without my intervention, every once in a while, <laughs> you know, he'll, he sa- he'll say something and the two of them will hear it. It's like, it's like seeing the Matrix. They'll hear it as he actually said it. Like, they'll hear him say mini and they'll be like, wait, like they're really small? Like they won't hear the other word. They they, they finally see through to what he's actually saying and they will right, right. call him out every once in a while. Like maybe every every third show, Elliot can't let one go by. He snags <sighs> it out of the air. Sometimes Stu grabs one. That I feel like that's my greatest accomplishment as it relates to the Flophouse. Many. Yeah, it's tough. I want to work on it. No, you know, there's nothing you can do about it. It's just, you gotta, sure I can. I can, I can change anytime I want. No, you got to be who you got to be. Free to be you and mm. me. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. I thought about you, uh, what, night before last. I was watching a really good documentary about the history of the women's movement. It made me think of you and your family. It's really good. It wasn't always easy for those gals. I don't know if you know that. Mm, I've heard. I think we needed to tackle your simulation topic. Oh, absolutely. Really? Yeah, I think we have to. I haven't boned up. Is that okay? No, neither have I. That's, but that's fine. I feel like we'll, we'll get through it pretty quickly. But it's, I, Okay, uh, this would be 20 seconds. topical, right? Like, I remember I saw, I saw the funny news stories about this in the past few weeks. Oh, I, t- I totally agree. And so, good. Well, maybe you can walk me through it. The only tiny piece of, of, mini, of many follow-up that I wanted to do is, yes, my, my wife's phone got reactivated. Turns out that activation problem... This is boring. Why am I telling you this? I just want to let you know it wasn't us. Mac Rumors, amongst others, are reporting that people had weird iPhone activation problems, and no one knows why. Yeah, that's that's somehow even worse than the idea like, oh, it was like a refurb and someone forgot to wipe it over. Like, that is explicable, and you're like, well, that's just human error. Sometimes things get busy, blah, blah, blah. But this is like, no, it was actually just a plain old empty phone. Like, you know, the house really was empty, right? There was no one lived there for 100 years, right? You get the phone, and you're setting it up, and it throws somebody else's Apple ID in your face. Now, the closest I got to that was, I think I was restoring, I don't know, some device, probably one of mine, uh, or one of my X devices. I think I was setting up a device for my daughter. It used to be one of my like iPod Touches or something like that. And during the setup process, it said, please enter the password for the Apple ID, blah. And it was the Apple ID of somebody that I know. Somebody that I've met in real life, in person, like once in my life, but no online what? for many years, whose name is in my address book, right? So you're like, it's not like this came out of left field, right? But 
I've they've never signed into my they've never touched any of my iOS devices. I've never signed into that. Like there has never been any sort of like use of their name as an Apple ID ever. And I was in the process of restoring, and it said enter. That's this terrifying. And I, and I screenshotted it. It wanted me to enter this person's Apple ID, and I screenshotted it and I sent it to him. Like, can you believe this? Like, like well, you know, did did uh, they're trying to feel like. Did you ever sign into him? But we know that's not the case. You never signed into my devices. I never signed into your devices. We've never shared Apple IDs. There's never been any connection. We've never been in an Apple ID family together or whatever. The only connection I can say is I know who that is because I know that person. But, and their name is in my address book. Their their email, their... It's, stuff like that does not instill confidence. Let's put it that way. Like, it's not as if, you know, nothing bad is happening. But on the other hand, what's going on? Well, exactly, and, and and like just to, you know, I have I have uh, oh boy, here comes the mini cycle. I have I have one incredibly crazy thought on that. There's no way it could be this, but I have had problems in the past with iCloud contact syncing, where for some reason it gets jumbled and somebody else's information shows up in somebody else's information. But yep. I can't imagine how that would have anything to do with... I mean, it might. They might be looking up the ID of a person and that ID maps to the wrong thing in the address book and they pull out the wrong information. Like, it's more explicable than a stranger, at least. Like, because your situation was like, you don't know who this person was. Um, although mm-hmm. it was starring it out in your point, in your thing, so maybe someone in your address book also had that. You know, you said you didn't recognize that name, but it's not like you were thinking of everyone in your address book and that it was all starred out, so you couldn't tell who it was. I think... Mine either wasn't start out enough and I could figure it out or showed it just, uh, you know, without obscuring it. Well, a couple things. One that's weird, and this, again, it's even more perplexing. Have you ever seen people, re- I think Daniel, I want to say Daniel Jauka reported this. Did you, have you seen when people have, was it friends of theirs or no, just people that they don't even know show up in Find My Phone? Have you seen that reported? Yep. yep. Well, that's, uh, Makes you feel good. <laughs> yeah, and you don't know if it's like, is, are those the people or the name is messed up? Like, I have had to, just to, not to just dump on Apple here, but I have the Google, Google Contacts is like my mortal enemy. Uh, it's one of the few things that I use Apple for and not Google. So I use Google for my oh, email, but I use Apple for contacts, even though Apple Contacts get scrambled up frequently too. But Google Contacts, the main failure mode for me is it has this thing where anytime someone sends you email, even though you don't add them to the address book, it helpfully adds it for you, kind of, Ugh. automatically. And spam being what it is, you will get tons of mail with a mismatched jumble of long name and email addresses. And what I'll end up with is a contact or multiple contacts in my Google Contacts that have 70 email addresses associated with them, Right. And, I had I had some, I had somebody I think it was probably somebody sending you know the typical like sending spam mm-hmm. to you as you thing but I had somebody's something like hotmail.co.uk show up in my contact because of that. Yeah, cuz Google is trying to be helpful and figure it out and because I end up with a contact with 70 different email addresses and just one of those names in there. Email will come in and Google will show like the avatar of the person like their picture next to it. And I'll say, like, John Doe, but have a picture of an entirely different person. So if you're just visually scanning a person that I know, a person from my contacts, because, like, that person has this picture associated with them, but this email address came from an email address that's one of the 70 that's associated with this phantom contact. 
And so it does this crazy lookup right. and it ends up with the wrong picture. Sometimes the same person's picture will show up on seven different contacts. Oh, this is this person and this is this person. And they're all the same picture and none of them are that person, but it is a person that I know. And you try to defeat it. You try to delete that contact. You try to reassign the avatars. You can't win because new email comes in and it just so eventually <laughs> I just gave up and said, look, Google contacts. You don't have any control. You don't have any control. Yeah. It's like my nightmare of like my inbox being my to-do list. Like, no, those are such different things. In this case, I made this area the way I want. Please don't touch anything. Yeah. And, and you know, so Google contacts are just are a complete write-off. And I, all I do is kind of use the autocomplete as they come in and hope that I recognize the email address. But yeah, that's, that's my worst nightmare is like trying to send an email and typing in a, a name instead of an address and it's saying oh i'm totally emailing john doe and it will say john doe and it will obscure the email address because you don't need to see that it's just john doe you know john doe is john doe and you have no idea what the email address is really sending to until you oh like, that's horrible click and expand the headers because there's some contact there lurking with 75 email addresses and the name john doe associated with it i um i reclaimed some measure of my measure some measure many measures of my sanity a few years ago when i stopped trying to sync both ways but at one point, there's this app called, what was it called? Oh, between Google and Apple? Yeah, no. Can't do that. Well, just so you know, I mean, there's a time when I was living this, and it was yeah, really a bad idea. I, I did it for a little while, too. And I also had did the, sync, the did app. Did you use uh, Co- SyncMan? No, I used the thing called, like, CoContact or something. It was some, Cohort? Was it maybe Cohort or something no, like that? There was, some, there was some utility to try to help you manage it, but it never worked right, and I had to divorce them. But it doesn't matter. They're, the Google Contacts is still a mess for me. Oh, but yeah, and so I mean, there but there were basic things, and I, I if I had to fault somebody I, for some reason, I fault. I think it was Google causing the problem. But you know, one of the things, and I, I okay, I don't think I'm that tightly wound about that many things. But like once I've assigned this as this is this person's mobile number, this is this person's iPhone number. You know, I I want those things to be correct. You know, even if I never look this up, I will sleep better knowing that that is correct. And it would get totally bonked. And after sometimes after a sync, every phone number in uh, my Apple contacts, everything would be other. And that that keeps me up at night, stuff like that. But uh, yeah, eventually I stopped that. And it was it was really I I finally kind of gave up. But even to this day, uh, without naming names, there's a person that I communicate with, say, 10 times a month about business affairs with regard to Roderick on the line. This is a person whose email I've had for, for years and ha- now have, you know, exchanges with, like, a lot during a given month. And I went to send email to that person today, and it did not complete. It came up with some, some wackadoodle local service provider for her, but not her Gmail address that I use. And I'm like, what? And then, so that happened a few days ago. It happened again today. And I'm like, how is, how is Google not learning that? Especially knowing how much they observe patterns of behavior, to not, not least of which to deal with spam or to do smart sorting or any of that stuff. Like, doesn't that seem like a weird oversight? I feel like this, the, the, the problem, it's my only explanation for this, I guess, is that spam comes in with basically random combinations of names and email addresses, many of which are people, the name is somebody you know, the email addresses you show me you know, and all sorts of different combinations. And despite the fact that Gmail may successfully file that at spam, it somehow terminally confuses the contact system because, again, it's helpfully saying, oh, this person emailed you, I'll add them to your contacts. And it tries to programmatically do that with garbage data, and it just scrambles everything. And it should, you know, you would like it to just, just please never do that. Never add anything to my contacts. <laughs> stop, stop helping right, me. And there might be an option for that. I remember back in the day, there was an option to say, don't do that. I'm not sure where it is now. Maybe it's some Google. Syncman would let you pick the, pick the winner. You could pick both ways or you could pick the winner. Like you could pick, you know, who to prefer over the other. 
but like it's still it's it's such a crapshoot. I still get stuff to, to like like now where do you ever get well I don't know if you get this but do you ever get like for whatever reason in photos or formerly iPhoto you some photos for some reason you get n copies of in my case up to 30 copies of the same photo. Do you, do you get that in have you ever gotten that in the photos app? I have not. I've avoided photos problems as far as I can tell. I didn't get things where everything is blank or everything is black or I have 100 copies. And I hope I never get that because I don't know what I would do because I got an awful lot of pictures. Well, yeah. And it's, it's, so I've used, because I'm, I'm not as good at this as you and I'm not as careful as you, but I, I've had okay luck using Duplicate Annihilator and just having Duplicate Annihilator, you can just say, look for like programmatically equivalent, like exactly bit for bit. Only do those kinds of duplicates still makes me nervous but I'll, I'll go through and i'll periodically go oh my daughter did a bunch of photo booth here at the office three years ago and suddenly there's 40 copies of that photo i have to keep going back and deleting those and then i will plug in my phone because as you know i am a an obsessive iphone backer upper i'll plug in my phone photos opens up bloop now there's 40 copies on my phone supposedly sync is hard Yep. Um, we have a big topic. You should walk me through this. Elon Musk was asked at some point recently. You know what? You tell me. You you probably followed this. You, you've than helped me. Uh, me by recalling the person who it was. I was like, which tech bro is it? It was like Mark Zuckerberg, Elon Musk. But now you say Elon Musk. Like, he was yeah. interviewed interviewed on stage. I'm not sure how the topic came up, but I I haven't seen the interview, but I read an article about it, and what I got from that article was he feels like. There is something close to a certainty that we're living in a simulation right now. And, but truthfully, it wouldn't matter because how would we know either way? But that there's a great likelihood that we are living in a simulation. He did not say it as a joke. He did not say it for yucks. There are other people, I believe, who've come up since then to say this. I want you to help me straighten this out. Are we living in a simulation, and how would we know? Well, I think the, the gist on the Elon Musk news wasn't that he was, uh, was, that he was investing money like give, giving a bunch of people money, presumably smart people. And the job of these people is to sort of start from the premise that we're living in a simulation and figure out how to break out of it, which... <laughs> Talk about a moonshot. They want to do the Matrix, basically. Right. Um, but wouldn't they have accounted for that? Wouldn't they have accounted for that in the simulation? Well, so here's the thing. Um, even though it sounds silly, like I think the, the main angle on this, the reason people pass this around and say, oh, Elon Musk isn't here, uh, a wacky guy. Uh, is because it seems frivolous. Like, of all the things that you could be researching, people can kind of be on board with, like, oh, electric cars, that might be a cool thing, uh, you know, or even even space or whatever. But uh, uh, living in a simulation thing, especially the angle like you're trying to break out of it, it seems like every, when you have a lot of money, not that I would know this, but I would imagine that if you have a lot of money, everyone in the world wants to tell you how you should be spending your money. Whatever you're doing with your money if they like what you're doing, it's like, oh, great, I really want to go to Mars. I'm glad you're funding all the space stuff. But if they think it's stupid, they should be like, you should, you know, it's, it's the same thing, you know. No matter what happens, oh, you know, other people have it worse. Or if you're not helping starving children, or you're not helping starving children who also have cancer, or you're not, like, there's always something worse. There's always something you could be doing your money with, with your money that's more noble and better. And if you're not taking every single ounce of your money and giving right. it all away to the absolute most needy people at this moment on Earth... You're a bad person, right? One of the things, one of the perks of being rich, I imagine, is that people always want to tell you what you're doing with your money, right? So, Can you imagine how, excruci- how excruciating that would be to like have given millions and millions of dollars to like really good charities? We don't want kids to have malaria and then go like, 
people are like, well, you know, actually education is more important. You're like, I'm not Santa. Like, I can't do all of this. Right. Or even just like going to Mars. People are going to say, why are you doing Mars stuff? That's not as important as insert thing that, that's more important, right? They just want, all want to tell you what you're supposed to do with your money, right? And yep. so the simulation thing, be, because more people think space stuff is cooler and more exciting and more important to humanity, more people are going to give that a pass than the simulation thing, which is the thing that most people haven't even thought about. And when it's explained to them, it just sounds like you're just throwing money away. Like you've got so much money, you're just burning it. And also you're stupid because it's obvious that we're not in a simulation. Like that's what regular people think when they hear this. So that is the, the angle on uh, the humor angle on the story. Separating popular opinion from this thing. If done in a reasonable way, I think it is a reasonable you know, you can apply science to this problem because, you know, you have you have an idea, you have a hypothesis, and this one's tricky because you're trying to find a way to test it. But it's not as if it's like, I believe this, therefore do this stuff. It's more like, if we were living in a simulation, there should be some way that we can show that. If we can't show that we're living in a simulation, then we can't say that we are. And finding a way to break out of it is like, well, to break out of it, you must show that you are in a simulation. And so it's a kind of a fun thought, it's, you know, science experiment to say, you know, like, like anything else, you know, if, if, uh, I don't know, if gravity could bend light, that would mean that the light from this thing behind there would, you know, like you, you can come up with an idea and then you can say, okay, to test that we need to, you know, there's lots of ideas you can come up with, but you can't test them until much later when technology catches up or, you know, lots of sciences, people have ideas and, you know, even black holes, like, I think this is a thing that could exist, but of course, no one's ever seen one, and I can't prove it, but someday maybe we can, right? Right, this, right. Like, what I'm saying is I think this is legitimate science. It may be science that doesn't seem to be particularly practical or science that we can't test right now, but I think that's the challenge. You have an idea that no technology exists to test, but theoretically, there's also nothing that contradicts it, and you wait until either someone clever enough comes up with a way to test it or technology catches up where you realize we could use this to test this idea and the idea is you test it and if you test it and come out with false results then it shows that your idea is not supported and because it's science you can't say well we tested it but i still think we're living in a simulation it's like well until someone can show that we are like you can't you know it's it's a pretty uh a pretty out there uh, hypothesis so you'll need pretty extraordinary evidence but I, and maybe extraordinary time i mean you might need something whatever you decide as a a way for some reason i'm thinking about seismic what do you call those size not a geiger counter no what's what's the thing where like it records seismic activity right with a little needle on the paper seismograph. seismograph that's something you might have to run that for who knows how many what millennia like who knows how long you might have to run that thing to pick up the signal that indicates there's a well, glitch I mean, that would uh, like all scientific experiment you're gonna say Here's how we're going to test for it. If we are living in a simulation, I think that will manifest in such and such a way. And therefore, we're going to test for that. And then, of course, people could argue, actually, you think that would show her in a simulation, but I don't think that would show her in a simulation. Here's another explanation for it. Like, it's really, really difficult, like you said, to come up with a test. I think this is a testable idea, but coming up with what is the thing that we can test kind of requires you to know sort of where the gaps are in the simulation, you know, like... Right. You, you, if it is a if it is a simulation, you have to sort of define the parameters of it. Like, 
here's what we assume this is. If this was the case, then such and such would be the case. Therefore, we're going to do this experiment and, and we'll see a result, right? And, but you can do so many of those and all of them just go negative, negative, negative because you're testing the wrong things. That I guess true of all science. That's just the way it works. But my brief touching on this topic by reading these funny stories uh, does not lead me to think that this is anything other than an interesting scientific experiment that is almost certainly not going to come up with any conclusive results just because it's so hard to test but i don't discount it as ridiculous because everything in science is ridiculous that's why you do experiment and the only thing that makes it science is when the experiment doesn't show what you wanted to show you're like okay i guess i was wrong and you try to come up with another idea that's science well yeah and I, I'm not sure how I feel about this. I don't, I don't mean to sound either like uh, cowed or wild by the idea, but I, I'm now I'm trying to put it put it into something like a historical continuum where it it uh, setting aside the simulation stuff for a minute. Like we now know that there's something like you know radio waves. We we know that there's a way to achieve um, you know air travel, including stuff like you know. Um, going to the moon or, or whatever that is. And the thing is, there was a time when that seemed beyond outlandish because everybody knows that whatever, the God of the moon made the cheese moon and everybody knows that it says so in this book. I mean, is it, am I, am I being naive to think that this is potentially, even if it's just a thought experiment, I mean, is it, is it that different from somebody looking through the telescope and saying like, I got a feeling, I got a feeling the sun might not be going around the earth which sounded like the nuttiest idea in the world, a, a, a heretical idea. Does, does this figure anywhere on a continuum somewhere between truly maverick revolutionary thinkers about reality and the world and technology and culture as against like nutty tinfoil hat stuff? Where does this figure on the continuum right now? I think it's the, the easiest uh, analogy, probably because it's one of the most recent scientific advances, but just because it, it is... It, chipped away at it it broke down such a fundamental premise of reality that most most people i mean the reason everyone sleeps tonight is because they don't they don't know this and think about this stuff but like whichever i forget which one i think it's general relativity whichever one was the whole thought experiment of like if you're if you're riding on a light beam and turn on a flashlight and shine out in front of you what's the deal there right because the whole idea that nothing can travel faster than light so if you get on something that's going really fast and you hold a flashlight in front of you and you shine the flashlight does the light come out of the flashlight? Uh, you know, it's, it's like the speed should add together. If you're going 50 miles an hour and you throw a ball at 50 miles an hour, the ball's going 100 because you were going 15 mm-hmm. and you threw it out of you, right? So did the speeds add up? If you're if you're on, a, on a, a train going half the speed of light and you turn on a flashlight, isn't that light coming out of the flashlight going the speed of light, 1.5 times the speed of light? Uh, and all sorts of experiments were showing that nothing was traveling faster than the speed of light. And so the, the Einstein... I, if it's special general i forget one of einstein's relativity things the whole <laughs> idea was like this seems like an intractable problem and it's all weird stuff and light goes really fast and we don't have good experimental equipment and we have some strange results uh he was willing to uh not accept a bunch of assumptions because if you do just basic this is one of the i'm probably getting the science in this wrong but i try to explain this to the kids and you know so the basic idea of the kids can understand you know uh speed uh you know times time you know how uh, equals distance or whatever like how how far do you go you're going this this speed for this amount of time this is the distance that you go it's a very simple equation 50 miles an hour you go there for you you go 50 miles an hour for an hour you've gone 50 miles everyone can Mm -hmm. get their mind around this and they just accept that 
the speed part, the distance part, and the time part are in a relationship to each other, and everything's all fine, right? But like the the measure correctly, a mile is always a mile, an hour is always an hour. Yeah, and 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 you know, so it, everything works out fine until you get to the thought experiment with like uh, you know riding on a train going half the speed of light with your flashlight, you turn the flashlight on. And, you know, the rule is like, well, we, we haven't measured anything traveling faster than the speed of light. So, like, what's what's the deal with that? What what happens? What do you see? Or what if you're riding on a beam of light? What would you see if you're riding on a beam of light? And it's like, well, you know, every, every intuition we have about how speed works at non-relativistic speeds seems weird and messed up. But the reason people are confused is because they're like, well, the time doesn't change and the distance doesn't change. So, like, maybe light goes slower or something, or it goes faster, and we didn't realize it, and Einstein's breakthrough was like, no, no, no. Time and distance are the things that do change. Things shrink when they're moving in the direction that they're moving, and time changes. Like, whoa, whoa, wait a second. Things change size when they move? That makes no freaking sense. And time is not a constant time. It's like, how can time change? That doesn't make any sense. Right. And th- those were the fun, because everyone accepts, like, distance and time, fine. Speed varies, but things don't shrink when they move. Like that's that's ludicrous. Like did the distance change, and at time, time is time. Like, you, are you saying when when you're moving, time is different for you than the people who are standing still relative to you? He took the two things that are so fundamentally, like, of course, everyone knows like time is time and distance is distance, and like the ball doesn't change size when you throw it. Like guys, duh, right? But when you when you look at those just simple three variables, and you're like, well. Here's what experiment says to be willing to say, you know what? Maybe maybe time and space do change. Maybe they're not fixed. Maybe they change. And then if you allow them to change, suddenly like the math works out and everything. And then you have all these consequences that spin out from that. You're like, wait a second. If this is the this is not the nature of the reality that we've been thinking about. If this is the this is the way reality really is that we can repeatedly experimentally show. We were so wrong about how everything in the universe works. Like for millennia, everyone was like, "Time is time and size." Like no one was debating that. No one's no one had thought to to do that experiment, mostly because it only happens at extremes. Um, so this living in a simulation is like, what's a fundamental what what's a fundamental premise that you can take an axe to to try to explain some phenomenon that you see? Now this is kind of going reverse, where it's like, what if I take an axe to the premise that like reality is what we think it is? That there's right. not some larger reality outside of us that we are not like whatever. If I take an axe to that, um, does that let me? Does that let me see? You know, see the matrix. Like I'll never see the matrix if I don't know I'm in the matrix. If I'm not looking for it, so it's not quite the same thing as trying to come up with something that explains uh, experiments that weren't you know explicable before. But it is similar, like a thought experiment. It's like if we were in a simulation, we're never going to know that if we don't look for it. And how, how would that manifest itself? And so I think the, the, the closest analogy is relativity in terms of taking things that everyone accepts that are true. And it's so dumb to even think, like, what are you even talking about? Things stay the same size when they move. It's so stupid. Uh, and time is time. Taking that and throwing it away so that you can break through in your thinking. Now, I think it'll be much harder to show because I think there's it's going, it's cause and effect is a little bit reversed. And they're like, wouldn't it be cool if, um, and we're never going to know if we don't check and there was that movie, The Matrix, I saw that really made me think, right? So it's kind of not quite as rigorous but as uh, what Einstein did in terms of being motivated by uh, otherwise inexplicable experimental or thought experimental results. But mm-hmm. it's I think it's similar. It's similarly disconcerting and also not just disconcerting, but like 
so disconcerting that it drops below the level of concern. Like most people go through their day not knowing or caring about relativity, even though it fundamentally changed the way science, the scientific world understands how our universe works. It's just at non-relativistic speed, relativistic speed that's not relevant to people's lives, but it is such a, you know, it, it breaks so many assumptions of, you know, the human race had and continues to have for that matter because it's relevant to us at our you know speeds and so on and so forth but hey it makes gps work so people are reaping the benefits of it whether they know it happens or not yeah and it feels i mean we think about um you know just um what when you when you think about like like what what do we really know in life and you know what is it that we can maybe even what we can prove but like like you're saying like well you know this is something we understand we understand that when i when i throw this ball it doesn't change size like i can see that like with my eyes right or i know i know that these kinds of things happen because like i know that when i drop this paper clip it it never goes up right and it seems like the ultimate kind of rationality to apply those things especially more than ever when you're talking about something that you don't really or can't really understand. Do you know what I mean? Like, it seems I'm, – I'm sitting right here, and I just sent you a link to this article in The New Yorker. Did you read this article by Maria Konnikova? This is right up your alley. I just briefly looked at it as an anti-vaxxer thing. In part. Um, it's about it's, – it's, it's having to do with – you know why? Why is it that there's something in the world that is just understood by people in a position to know that it, this is a fact? And why is it that some kinds of facts are um, less difficult for people to accept, and other kinds of facts, when proven further, have what do they call the kickback effect? Where like people being told, like if you're really into raw milk, uh, being told that raw milk is extremely <laughs> dangerous actually makes you more suspicious of people who are not into raw milk. All kinds of examples, including vaxxers and stuff like that. But I, I really recommend this article. It'll be in show notes. Um, but I love this paragraph here. Imagine living in the time of Galileo when understandings of the Earth-Sun relationship were completely different. Um, what would happen if Galileo tried to correct your belief? The process isn't nearly as simple. The crucial difference between then and now, of course, is the importance of the misperception. When there's no immediate threat to our understanding of the world, we change our beliefs. It's when the change contradicts something we've long held as important that problems occur. And so I wonder, you know, it doesn't just have to be about this wackadoodle simulation idea. I mean, it seems like this is something that we should all be thinking about in day-to-day life, put slightly differently, and I'm moving into the floofy, floofy pink, la-la, cotton cloud stuff here, but, you know, I, doubt your assumptions. Like, what is it, is it, are you sure that those are the constants in what you're looking at? And like, you know, when is it appropriate to utterly question the thing that you think you understand? And when do you, and to which signposts of knowledge should we cleave ourselves? That's a very poorly worded question. But like for you, like you're somebody who seems like you're very, like you want to know what the scientific evidence of this is, how, whatever it is. It could be like, you know, how long it takes to heat a bagel. Whatever it is, it seems like you're really open to like seeing what the data is, understanding how it was connected. How do you know which kinds of things to doubt or reject utterly, which kinds of things to consider, you know, and which kinds of things do you look at as immutable or nearly immutable? Well, to get what this article is 
trying to say. Like that paragraph you read, I think is the heart of it in in terms of if there's some what happens what happens if it turns out that the thing you thought was wrong um for relativity and for living in a simulation nothing happens to anyone for the most part right um and and if relativity didn't happen and we were having the same conversation you'd be like well if they can show we're living in a simulation that will just change everything forever it'll be the most important discovery and people will never be the same it will affect everybody's life right you could have said the same thing about guess what time and space aren't constant that will change everything. And it did change everything, but only for scientists because it hasn't had any effects on our daily life. Again, other than all the technology that these lovely scientists bring people, but they don't care how that crap works. They don't care how GPS works. They don't care how satellites work. They don't care how space travel works. Like, they're just whatever. People do that stuff. It's fine. It does not affect your day-to-day life. So there's no, there's no threat. There's no, like, my entire identity was built around the idea that time and space are constant. Um... Because like whatever they don't, they can just continue to think that, and nothing changes in their life, and no one is in their face constantly saying "ball shrinks when you throw it." Like they're not arguing over like it's not even like the flat earthers who, for whatever reason, are tied up with the whole idea that the Earth is flat. Um. So if it's not, if it doesn't have any effect on your day to day life, I would say for most people, it's not. It's not. Uh, it, it should be beneath your level of concern. Like, don't spend your time worrying about relativity because we've, you know, that's a thing that scientists have known for a while and it's important and they use it in their work and that work affects your life, but you don't really need to know it because you're very rarely moving at any any appreciable fraction of the speed of light relative to other things that you care about, right? Right. So it doesn't, it doesn't change anything. I mean, it could eventually because you get stuff like Tang and, uh, you know, Velcro and stuff, but, but by and large, it doesn't change the way if you farmed, you'll continue to farm. It's not going to change the way you experience the world. It's like one day a switch flips and now this relativity stuff is having a different right. impact on how you conduct yourself. And it, and it strikes it like pro- two of the most fundamental assumptions about the nature of reality. And yet even that does nothing as opposed to, for example, raw milk or whatever, where that's not a fundamental assumption of reality about milk, but it's a thing that people attach their identities to. And also any of these things start to get into, you know, conspiracy theories of the whole, there's a, that that very slow very slowly produced but nevertheless very good series uh, this is not a conspiracy or is that what it is this is not a conspiracy theory the guy who did it from everything's remix he's been putting out the series oh of videos right right uh, kirby to, what's his name yeah yeah kirby ferguson or something i don't know anyway yeah, i think that's right um they're really good i wish they would come out faster um me too but anyway that is just part of human nature and if any sort of belief has any tie to that like, you know, big milk doesn't want you to know that raw milk is better for you and, you know, big oil wants to kill the electric car and like whatever, you know, any kind of conspiracy theory, especially conspiracy theories that turn out to have a seed kernel of truth or have been true in, in full or in part at various times in the past, that becomes an entirely different thing. And I think that, you know, conspiracy theories really take over a lot of this stuff. It's not just the identity type things, but in terms of what to care about, like the simulation stuff, like I find it interesting and amusing mostly because I have a hard time coming up with like an experiment to test this idea. Like that's, that's the, Mm -hmm. that's basically the problem. You said it yourself. How would we know? Wouldn't they design the simulation? Like it's a really hard thing to test. Like, and as with all scientific experiments, like part of science is other scientists will tell you your experiment doesn't show what you think it showed. Like, yes, you got a result, but does that result actually show, you know, 
that we are in a simulation, or could there be 17 other explanations for it? And so they can do an experiment. Well, one of those so. terrible line graphs, you know, where you can make these these ludicrous line graphs on correlation. Yeah, yeah. Where you say, like, well, you know, the number of hats sold per year, you know, attracts to the this particular stock price or something like right. that. But that's... Um, CDC calls raw milk one of the world's most dangerous food products, quote-unquote, noting that improperly handled raw milk is responsible for almost three times as many hospitalizations as any other food-borne illness. Sounds like the lies of big milk. Yeah. So the conspiracy theory ones and also something that you've done a long time, especially as it relates to your identity. Like, say you've been doing something for your kids. It turns out to actually have been horrible for them. How do you... You don't want to think, oh, I've been doing this thing that's bad for my kids for years. Like... You can't handle the idea that you were essentially a bad parent, getting back to our parenting things, because that's such a core part of your identity, and you're such a fear of being a bad parent, that you will fight against that, um, right, right, even right. in the absence of any conspiracy theory. Um, so, yeah, that's the, the problem this New Yorker article is getting at is the, the difficulty of conveying facts to people when they don't want to hear it because it makes them feel bad. The scientific stuff is much more fundamental, but doesn't affect people's day-to-day lives so the way i i mean i'm i'm like every other person like the the simulation thing i would be super interested in if they start getting results and like because if they start getting results other, the rest of the scientific community will come on board either to to debunk or to reinforce and like everything will work and that that would be a huge breakthrough and the consequences of that could be huge uh could be even you know even bigger than the consequences of relativity which are pretty big in themselves and you know the, the consequences of, of Einstein's ideas and the things that came out of them are potentially species and world destroying, or potentially species and world preserving in terms of space travel and. You know, that that's the thrust of what Musk is saying here. This is kind of I don't know if it's the nut graph, but it's pretty close. Musk said the uh, at the end of this paragraph. Musk said the odds. This is an astonishing statement. Musk said the odds that we are living our lives in base reality, that is real reality, is one in billions. New paragraph, that's not necessarily a bad thing. If a civilization stops advancing, then that may be due to some calamitous event that erases civilization. Either we're going to create simulations that are indistinguishable from reality, or civilization will cease to exist. So I think he's pulling this percentage out of his butt, because it's like, whatever, anyone can make up that number. You've got nothing to support that except for like your intuition, which is fine. You can use that intuition to kick off yeah, a series start. of experiments, but that's just, that's just BS out of nowhere. Like, whatever, you know, I can... <laughs> The odds that we're not living in a giant's toenail are 20 billion to one. Anyway, I can say whatever the hell I want. Like, what are you basing that on? Nothing. Right. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's kind of like the, story checks the, out. Getting to like the, the Fermi paradox stuff. There's lots of good videos in the Fermi paradox, which uh, briefly is the, the idea that uh, uh, was it Enrico Fermi or whatever. It said, look, yeah, um, this is the age of the universe as best as we can tell. If it takes this long for civilizations to get to the, the point where they, where they can go from one star to another, and if, you know, there is uh, intelligent life on this percentage of planets and there's this many planets and there's this much time has passed, uh, there should by now be multiple, you know, galactic spanning civilizations spreading all over our galaxy and the other galaxies, but we don't see any. Um, and so what's the deal? And the deal is, uh, as it turns out, we're the first civilization to get to this point uh, and we're actually ahead of every other civilization. Um, it could be that every civilization that gets to a certain point of advancement kills itself. Uh, it could be that there is what they, they call the great filter, which is that every civilization uh, gets to a certain point and then something happens not of their own doing that makes it so they don't progress any farther. Or it could be that just really we're the only ones out there. And I guess simulation is another potential explanation. But 
the Fermi paradox, it's got a catchy name and everything, but it's based on all sorts of assumptions that lead up to it. It's like, if this, and 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 assign these values to all these constants, therefore we should see X, but we don't. Therefore, let's think of the reasons. And people just want to talk about the reasons and not want to go back and say, well, if any of these assumptions are off, or these numbers are off by orders of magnitude, the whole thing's out the window anyway. So it's fun mm-hmm. to think about, and you can use it to help you motivate what things you might be looking into. Um, but there's so many assumptions and unknowns that any part, like the whole thing could be blown out of the water if you just you know change a few parts here and there. And as we get more data, like how many planets really are out there, how many habitable planets are out there, and even then we're still going assumptions that life looks anything like we do and would communicate in ways that we do. And like it's, what was that? Some recent thing I saw people looking at some something happening on some small percentage of stars. They were like changing intensity of some radiation in a way that seemed very unlikely and only happened in a small percentage of stars. And they're like, maybe this could be a sign of intelligence life because we can't think of another reason why it came. Like we always want it to be aliens or something exciting, yeah. but it's really difficult to get a result that's conclusive there. But that's, you know, I, I, I'm interested in all this stuff and I like looking at it, but I don't spend my time worrying when you're getting out in the show notes, worrying about whether we live in a simulation. By all means, show that we are and get some cool results out of it. Um, but in the meantime, it's, I'm not losing sleep. This episode of Reconcilable Differences is brought to you in part by Squarespace, the simplest way for anyone to create a beautiful landing page, website, or online store. You can start building your website today at squarespace.com. When you enter the offer code DIFFS at checkout, that's D-I-F-F-S, you're going to get 10% off your first purchase. Sing it along with me, people. This is Squarespace. You need to be using this with easy-to-use tools and templates. Squarespace helps you capture every detail of what drives you. Because, hey, if it's worth the effort, it's worth sharing with the world. And a website is a great place to share things with the world. I've checked. Squarespace puts all the power you need into your hands, and it takes away the pain points. You're not going to have to worry about hosting, scaling, or what to do if you get stuck with something. That's why you use Squarespace. Squarespace, you can build a site that looks professionally designed, regardless of your skill level. You'll easily be able to make your website look and feel exactly how you want. Squarespace has state-of-the-art technology to power your site and to ensure security and stability. Their site templates are just stunning to look at. They all feature responsive designs, and that means that your site is going to look great on any size or type of dingus or device. It supports both. But this is just getting started. Squarespace has tons of awesome features. They have 24 by 7 support with live chat and email. You get the Squarespace commerce platform that allows you to add a store to your Squarespace site. And the fantastic cover page functionality to build great-looking single-page websites. Tremendous websites. Rock-solid, fast hat hosting, and so much more. And if you want to stretch Squarespace even further, you've got to check out their dev platform. This is the thing that lets you dig into the code and tinker with your Squarespace site. Thing is, if you sign up for a year, you're also going to get a free domain name. It won't cost any money. That allows you to choose exactly the name that you want for your site. Squarespace plans start at just $12 per month. So please go today and start a trial with no credit card required. Start building your website today by going to squarespace.com. And when you decide to sign up for Squarespace, like a person, make sure to use the offer code DIFFS. That's D-I-F-F-S. And that is going to get you 10% off your first purchase. And it will show your support for Reconcilable Differences. Our thanks to Squarespace for supporting Reconcilable Differences and all of Relay FM. At this juncture, it's interesting to point out, um, 
I'm sitting here being this fancy lad talking about the science stuff that I don't really understand. These are two articles I came across. This one article on how to get people to change their mind. The other article on whether we're living in a simulation. I got one from The Verge, and I got the other one from The New Yorker. So this is having an effect on how I'm thinking right now, right? It's it's um, This is input. This is not data precisely, but these are new ideas that I'm turning over in my mind that came from popular media. And I, I wonder, not to pivot too hard on the um, what people believe stuff, but I wonder if part of it is that we there are so many different sources of where we can get information. I guess what I'm trying to get at is this. There's that, there's that kind of that old saw about what people call, let's just say, oh, science. Oh, science. Science, you told us that fat was bad. And carbohydrates were good. And then you told us that carbohydrates, you told us that coffee causes cancer. You told us that coffee cures cancer. And I feel like I hear something different on Good Morning America every month or so. And I just don't know how much I want to put my stock in all this science. When, when many, I, I assume, like, who knows where those kinds of things are coming from. But I mean, what's, what's the risk and benefit of this big agency or this big umbrella that we call science? Because it seems like a lot of stuff gets lumped in. Personally, I'm very interested when I talk about the turns out culture, I'm very interested in the social sciences and the ways that these, these you know, these studies with, you know, irreproducible results come out, you've got the file drawer effect, you've got all this stuff that uh, ends up affecting these things that many people for a while will end up looking at as like conventional wisdom, tentpole information about how we, we live and how we work with each other. Like what is when I, I, so I'm sitting here reading the New Yorker, like, am I any better or worse off than somebody who's getting this from the national Enquirer? I'm not really doing my own scientific research here. Like, who do you turn to, to know what's real? Well, it, a lot of, you know, nothing happens in a vacuum. So a lot of scientific results, like, Again, part of the process is you do an experiment and you say, this experiment shows that my idea that X is Y, uh, you know, this experiment supports that. And then part of what peer review is, is to try to get your thing published. They'll look at what you say and say, oh, okay, yeah, either it does show what you think it shows to the degree that you think it shows it, or it doesn't. And even if you're peer reviewed, other scientists can go, actually, I think you're wrong about that. I think there's an alternate explanation. And here's an experiment I devised to show that actually your results is explained by this other phenomenon. And then like, that's how science works, right? And so it's one after the other after the other. People don't like the idea that scientific consensus can end up being wrong, right? That everyone can have this particular idea for dozens or hundreds or thousands of years until someone comes along and say, that seemed like a good idea, but actually here is this experiment that shows that idea is wrong and here's an alternate explanation that better explains the natural phenomenon that we can measure and as we get better right. at measuring things and so that's that's uncomfortable to people so part of it is like the whole idea of like oh science can't you make up your mind because they want the certainty of religion or whatever where it's just like there's one answer don't ask any questions about it. it's never going to change it's right for all time right and that's not how science works and so that is bothersome to people especially if you live through a time when this thing if you if you lived through einstein's discoveries and you were a scientific person like what space and time are in constant what the hell like science is useless <laughs> right it's actually right 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 it's actually pretty darn useful but it, be, it can be disconcerting when things change right second part is a lot of scientific results you know they they, they come out in a long time i here's this experiment that i think shows this and other scientists do their experiment show, like that's a time series right so if, if some experiment is done and it supposedly shows this result 
And you were to look at that and say, oh, that's interesting, and either believe it, you know, think, think that's reasonable, and then have to wait two years for a bunch of other scientists to do other experiments to give alternate explanations. And that two years, like, you're believing idea one. And then two years later, idea two comes along that offers a different explanation that's better. And you're like, oh, I got it. I got it. That actually turned out to be wrong. And I've been thinking that for two years. And that's that's uncomfortable. And, you know, you just want it to, like, can we just all agree and, like, not do any more science until I die? So everything will be the same <laughs> and, and there'll be no, mm. no fighting and no changing back and forth. No, can we cannot have human biases? Can we not? Like, this is true of being old scientists who refuse to believe their foundational ideas they grew up with are wrong and we have to wait for them to die. Like it's just, or it, scientific results influenced by culture and other things like they're humans are fallible. They get things wrong. Like it's, it's a, it's a dirty business because it's uh, executed by humans. Um, and then another factor on top of that is, results that scientists know are extremely limited they get into the human interest story or technology section of a a website or newspaper or whatever and get twisted into a much more you know sensational sounding form that if you were to ask the scientists they'd be like no 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 my experiment doesn't show that at all you have misunderstood exactly how narrow this is because you don't understand the foundational science you're like no fat is bad like that's no, we showed actually we showed for this value of this with these people with these it's just like but that doesn't if it sounds like a good story if it can be in the human interest section or the technology section of a newspaper or on a newscast or in a tweet or whatever uh the people who are doing that their job is to uh you know get people to read or consume their content so they can sell their eyeballs to advertisers but like that's a whole other thing going on over there and that's how most people get their science and it's not a surprise that they get fed a bunch of junk science, non-peer-reviewed science, science that's already been discredited, or science that they just absolutely misunderstand, or science that's not even science, that just, like, sounds good, or people looked at this and it's totally unscientific. I mean, look at how excited people are about, not to get into politics again, but, like, completely unscientific internet polls uh, essentially run by bots, <laughs> then, you know, that they'll right. just, like, p- trade those back and forth, because that gets people interested in it. So, that's the whole range of things that you could be experiencing that can make you put it all in the umbrella of science and say science is stupid, science is not. Science is complicated and difficult, um, but it's the only system that we have that works, and most people's exposure to it has little or nothing to do with actual science, especially when it comes to things like food safety or diet or specifically things that are really difficult to test without being uh, a terrible human. Like Basically, lots of things would be easy to test if we didn't have a if human life was valueless like let, let's raise twins and he's in these incredibly different you know b- back when they had different ethical sna- like just lots of things you gotta kind of wait for the guy to be born with his hemispheres not not connected because now we don't cut them in half anymore um you, you gotta wait for the 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 birth defect that causes two people to share the same brain to learn these things like because you're not going to intentionally torture people to figure things out. You don't, we don't even like to torture animals that much to do this type of thing. So a lot of times you just have to wait. Um, and things having to do with health, you're not going to say, we're pretty sure this is terrible for you. So we're going to take this huge population and do a thing that we're pretty sure is terrible intentionally. you got to find people who are already doing that and then control for all the factors and and talk about influence. Like there is, you know, 
big sugar, big fat, the, the cigarette manufacturers don't want to tell you that smoking is bad for you to get back to smoking again. Like there is, <laughs> there are countervailing forces on all sides of this. You know, if we can sell more, remember oat brand, if we could sell more things with oat brand on it because of this one science, scientific study that had ver- was very narrowly defined and was disputed and disproved two years later, but it's too late. Oat brand is on every single thing. You know, I, it's frustrating. Well, and also, I mean, you take something like uh you take a letter, um, what are, what are the levels of this? You got a letter, you got a case study, you got a case control, all the way to like a longitudinal study. And what you end up learning from a longitudinal study might not be that interesting, but it might be more reliable. Whereas what you get from like, like in the case, again, not to beat up, but in the case of the guy in England with the vaccines, I think that was a letter. Wasn't that a letter to like nature or science? His whole thing about the correlation between vaccines and wasn't he didn't he have fraudulent data too like that was just another example the whole i think the whole thing i mean like i i don't want to overstate this but i i think i think that there i think there was a paucity of everything apart from people's interest in hearing a story like this and even now again of course even today when you know basically that guy's been not disbarred, but I think they took away his medical license. He lost right, his post. It wasn't just a bad were, experiment. It didn't just show what he did, but he also like lied and cheated. Like on time. And they retracted it. Yeah, yeah. But that's I think all that stuff has has, you know, such a huge I'm trying to think there was such a huge Oh, you know what it is? The the latest turns out. Uh and meta turns out. Uh the thing about was it power poses? Remember all the research that came out about like if you especially if you're a woman and you're in this situation and you strike this certain kind of powerful pose like it, it we have empirical evidence that shows that that will have a like an uh, i guess an unconscious impact on the people uh, around I, I had not heard that one yeah I, right now i'm looking at another article from the atlantic thank you atlantic for sponsoring this episode of reconcilable differences this is an article i read a few years ago i have not followed up on this super carefully but this was again this was at the heart of not the heart at the height of my frustration with turns out journalism and turns out culture it's an article called Lies. It's in notes. Article called Lies, Damn Lies, and Medical Science from November of 2010. And it's an article about this guy. His name's John Ion, Ionadis. I think he's a Greek guy. And he leads a department at Stanford, at least at this time, who I think is they're like the, they are, they are a meta research, a meta research uh, arm. They basically, all they do all day long is look at other people, look at published research and tear it apart. And it's, it's such a fascinating article. It really opened my eyes to like how much stuff goes from some observation to conventional wisdom in such a short amount of time. Uh, and so uh, he's, he's what's known as a meta-researcher. He's become one of the most foremost, quoting this article from The Atlantic, he's what's known as a meta-researcher. He's become one of the world's foremost experts on the credibility of medical research. Jumping down, he charges that as much of 90, as 90% of the published medical information that doctors rely on is flawed. And going through, and mostly unconscious, mostly unconscious flaws. And obviously, there's like, you run into meth- methodology stuff, as I say, file drawer effect, which I find fascinating. In other words, replicating something until you get the results you want and throwing out the ones that didn't match it. Um, boy, what an interesting idea. And you think about like where you'd like to see some resources go. Wouldn't you love to see some resources go to like going after the turns out studies? And that's all the, that's all this group does. Well, I mean, they do, but like, but, but it, at that point, it's usually too late. Like once it enters the, the common knowledge, you got to wait for those people to die. Like it takes so long and so many experiments reinforced by so many other scientists to eventually support like it's not it's not like oh i do a study and everyone agrees that it's accurate therefore it proves it. it's like there's just so many other 
possible explanations and variables you really need like look how long it just took to get to figure out that smoking is bad for you that seems like a slam dunk in hindsight right but it took a lot because you had you had everything in the mix there you had people who don't want to believe it because they're they love smoking because they're addicted you've got large money corporations that want you to keep buying cigarettes so you've got that that thing in there you've got the people who are the authorities who are doing the experiments subject to both of them they're both subject to the money and they're also subject to the fact that they're smokers themselves right so they don't want to believe it doing experiments that are either motivated by money or their desire not to believe that they're killing themselves or both um and it just took years and years and years for us everyone to agree smoking is bad for you it took so long and like can you think of anything more like it's not it's not close it's not like oh we're we're on the borderline it might be slightly bad for you it's it's bad for you in so many ways it seems like it should have been a slam dunk but took decades right that's that's unfortunately how science works that it's not like you just do one experiment so i did this experiment and everyone peer reviewed it and they said it's right smoking's bad we all agree right it's like no no we don't agree like we, <laughs> no we don't we know we people don't. <laughs> need to be able to replicate your experiment they need to be able to poke at it. they need to it needs to stand up to people trying to disprove it like that's what makes it correct it, it gets more correct the more people try to disprove it and the more they end up just reinforcing it right uh and it's difficult to get things correct the first time so this is the system we have and that person who's going through and saying this study does not show what it thinks it's showing the certainty that they're implying here is is incorrect because again peer reviews they're just people too and they're they have their own motivations and their own things and their own funding and in the world of science this is the question of how it's all funded and these people are spending most of their time trying to get funding and figuring out what is fundable or what you know who will give me money to do anything in my field and what do they want the result to be and all you know it's very fraught right but it is the best and only system we have for getting closer to the truth over time all other systems take us farther away or leave us stagnant. This is the only system that brings us closer. It's so process. What, what I'm getting from what you're saying also is that it's very process oriented. That nobody with any actual sense is going to say, "Well, there's a study about this, and therefore this is truth." Now, instead, if there's more grist for the mill, in the sense that now we have to go in, you know, replicate this, look at it in context, see. And but it just seems like there's like well, that's what like everybody does. Almost- what you just said. Everyone sees one study, gets written up in, in the paper they happen to read, and that's it as far as they're concerned. Until the next time. And if people have a good enough memory, they're like, didn't I just read something that told me that, you know, coffee was good for you, but then this is coffee's bad? And they just I feel like I feel like I heard it's bad for me. Like, what's what's going on? Right. They just start tuning it out. They're like, coffee's good. Coffee's bad. Whatever. I'm just going to do whatever I want. Right. Uh, And it's the same during the thing. It's like these people say smoking is bad. That's ridiculous. My grandmother smoked until she was 90 years old and she was fine. And these people say, see, this guy says smoking is good. See, everything's fine. And then you get another one's bad. And it's good. I'm not paying attention. I'm not going to say smoking is bad. Sometimes <laughs> I say smoking is good. You got to wait for all those people to die and you got to wait decades. Call me, and- call me when you guys work it out. Right. Did you see, uh, did you look at that link? Um, what have I got here? The, uh, truth. This is from, um, documents. Yeah, this is from uh, the um, university that my wife works for, which I believe is the, not the exclusive, but they are the home to here you'll see it's called the Truth Tobacco Industry Documents, and I cannot even tell you how many hours I have spent on this site. Um, and I think you might really enjoy it because I th- uh, so what's the exact? They did the whole like uh, tobacco settlement thing, and as a result, lots of stuff came out in the wash about, for example, are you looking at this Associated Film Promotions letter? Mm-hmm. How about that, huh? Lots of stuff. Godfather came Three, out. you got the wrong, you got the bad one there. Dear Mister Stallone. <laughs> 
<laughs> title. In furtherance of the agreements reached between yourself and Associated Film Productions representing their client, Brown and Williamson Tobacco Company. This is like something out of The Simpsons. We wish to put in some reform the various understandings and details. So da 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 da. Further down, um, let's see. Uh, so we want you basically to put cigarettes in these five movies, uh, and for that, let's see the financial commitment by by Brown and Williamson, uh, two hundred fifty thousand dollars in five equal payments of fifty thousand um, dollars. And notice over there in the side rail, yeah, this is the marketing to youth MSA collection. So. <laughs> yeah it's speaking of it, getting back to the, the smoking thing it's like even when like on top of all the science on top of all that even when you've got like let me show you the documents that show that the tobacco companies knew this and there was a conspiracy to keep this truth like you get the smoking gun like hundreds of smoking guns like <laughs> on top of everything right and still right. and still still it's difficult still you have to wait for people to die like that's like the best case scenario Slam dunk science, actual conspiracy to keep the truth from people motivated by people who are, you know who who want you to keep buying cigarettes, and still generations have to live and die before we accept that it's bad. And then and then on top of that, it's like how long do we have to wait for us? You know the secondhand smoke thing. I'm like, okay, well smoking is bad, but magically if I don't have to touch a cigarette to my mouth, of course I never inhale any of that, or if I do, it doesn't count or something, right? And we had to wait another set of decades and people to die before you can't smoke in restaurants and on airplanes. For crying out loud, on airplanes, like it's just it takes so long. It takes so long. <laughs> it's to a, it does anything. seem lud- it does seem ludicrous now. Yeah, it seems very very. And and that's the best case. Weird. That's the best case for progress. So anything more nuanced about exactly what is the effect? And sometimes you're barking up the wrong trees. Like exactly what is the effect of fat on people's diet? Should I eat more fat or less fat? What kind of fats? Like. And people don't even understand all the mechanisms for, you know, you know, they try to study. They're like, well, what about these people in the Mediterranean who have tons of this kind of fat and they're fine? What, what is, how do genetics factor into this? Is there some environmental thing? Maybe it's because what they're drinking. Is it because how much they exercise? How much red wine they like? Which the body is incredibly complicated, and so anything having to do with diet that people can relate to, it's so difficult to get a result that is actually fits in a little capsule summary. Other than if you don't eat food or drink water, you will die. And even that one, I bet someone's going to be like, really? Is that really true? I bet I could not drink water for a year and be fine. Like, run that experiment. Have fun. But, uh, like, there's so little consensus because the body is so incredibly complicated and we don't understand so much of it. And so much interacts with everything else that any experiment about, like, is red wine good for you or not? Like, it's a meaningless question. But that's how it's going to be phrased. It's such a... It is in between, like, you're saying, like, you remember... uh, This might be before your time, but I remember... um, I want to say it was Yoplait, but I don't remember. But there was an ad that was just omnipresent through my whole childhood that was like these very, very old women in, I want to say, Romania, you know, with the whole like shrunken apple faces, these women who are like 110 years old or 106 years old. And it basically just says straight up that like, well, well, you know, can't say, but uh, they do eat a lot of yogurt and they seem to live a pretty long time. (laughs) The secret to longevity is be this old Romanian woman. Oh, I'm going to have difficulty with that because I'm not that old for me. Drink a glass of milk every morning for 100 years. <laughs> but then you combine that with, well, I don't know, man. My Aunt Beatrice was smoking when she was 100 and, you know, she did pretty well. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's the secret. It's, yeah, because, again, common sense is the worst tool ever for trying to figure out what you're supposed to do. Uh, but because <laughs> it doesn't, you know, everyone, it's the same thing with successful people. We talked about this before. It's like, yeah. once you become rich, you, you, everything you've done in your life it becomes a consequence problems. of like, if you, you know, 
I flew kites as a child, and and therefore that's why I became a rich and famous CEO. Like you just you take everything that has ever happened to you that you feel good about, and you draw a straight line through to your success. And it's like you find these, you find a few little, you find a little, few little, um, especially sharp little pointy data points, and put that together. Like you know, okay, how about this one? How how do you feel about? I feel like I ran into this a lot. A few years ago, and I, I'm not sure where I would even go to look this up. <laughs> Remember the old thing, like when you're a kid and you hear about, oh, you know, Abraham Lincoln and Andrew Johnson, they had all these things in common. <laughs> no, no, Kennedy. Yeah, yeah. It was Kennedy. It was Kennedy and Kennedy and Lincoln. Lincoln had a secretary named Kennedy. Kennedy had a secretary mm-hmm. named Lincoln. And and Kennedy died in a Lincoln. Hey. Kennedy died in a Lincoln, and Lincoln died in Ford's Theater. Right. And you're like, whoa, this is insane. Yep. Or, you know, take that to the point of, like, you take a room full of 35 people, and guess what? Two of those people will probably have the same birthday. It's crazy. No one knows why. <laughs> yeah, nobody knows. Magnets, how do they work? Yeah. <laughs> people people know why uh, for the probability no, ones. For, There's but, no way to know. But, no, but for the no, 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 I saw a good one. I'm, I I'm heard watching, probability causes cancer. I'm watching YouTube videos with my daughter, and I, I learned something new last night. Um, <laughs> anyone who's a mathematician already knows all this crap before, but it was like... Uh, <laughs> So it's another one that's totally counter to to common uh, common sense. Yeah. If you take, uh, what, I'll give you. You can phrase it in like a trick question way to try to like do the gotcha thing. So they didn't do this in the video, but I'll do it now. Like, what are the odds that right now, as we're talking here, there are two points that are like that are opposite each other, like Earth sandwich style? You know what I mean? Like if you just drill straight down through the center of the Earth and pop out the other side. So two points that are like that, you know, so pick any point on the globe and the opposite one is like, go through the center and pop out the other side. You understand the visualizing here, right? Yeah. Like if you went exactly through the, the not the radius, but through, yeah, but like for the two furthest points, points apart, starting here, you will go through until it comes out the furthest point away on the other side of the yep. earth. Um, and this all assumes the earth is a sphere and all this other crap. But anyway, um, what are the odds that there are two points like that, that are exactly the same temperature and pressure right now? So pick any point on the globe and say it's 80 degrees and the barometric pressure is whatever. I don't even know how it's measured, inches of mercury. Um, and then drill through the center of the earth and pop out the other side, uh, and you get the exact same temperature and the exact same pressure. What are the, Do you know what, the answer to this? What are the odds? What are the odds? I'm going to say... It sounds like um, a birthday, birthday paradox, doesn't it? Like, what are the odds you get 30 people? What are the odds it, sounds very, it, sounds, it sounds very rare. I think that the chance of that working... I mean, obviously, I don't know. I'll say 3%. Uh, it's 100%. That's why it's a trick question. Is this a pound of feathers, pound of iron kind of situation? No, there's a good video explaining it. Um, but it's a, ty- it's a type of thing where what? people's common sense... You're gaslighting me again. No, people's common sense does not lead them to the correct answer because they don't think about it like a mathematician and because they don't know these fixed point theorems and all this other stuff. Like, but common sense is terrible at stuff like this. That's why we have scientists. Like, it's a, you know, I'm, 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 did you see the face I'm making right now? I am genuinely I'll, I'll confused by that. There's some, there's some good ones. Please send me the video. Yeah, there's, lot, there's lots of stuff that you can do with math that leads to very counterintuitive. The birthday paradox is a great one because that's a, a basic probability thing and it leads to a very counterintuitive result. Um, How many people does it take? Remind me. I, I don't remember. Isn't it like, like around twenty or thirty? Like the, the odds start to get, they get the odds start to get to the point where you'd be willing to put money on it really soon. Because <laughs> like, well, and you can illustrate that. I think that's that's the kind of thing you can illustrate to a dummy like me by saying, okay, let's imagine there's three people in a room and we'll draw lines between them. We had a fourth person. We draw lines between all of those. If you do that with twenty three people, so you suddenly go, oh, well, that if you really think about that for a minute, that's that's. It's a pretty good chance that's it. Yeah. Computed probability of least at least two I mean, people I mean, sharing no, like, a birthday. And again, trying to explain, I think that the the uh, 
what are the antipodes thing, the, the fixed point theorem and all that stuff of the points going through the Earth. That's pretty... Once you see the explanation, you buy it grudgingly because you're like, all right, math, you win this time, right? Because <laughs> you know, it makes sense. Um, but there, but even the simplest ones, like the Monty Hall problem, you have to get really creative. This gets back to what you were saying before. You have to get really creative sometimes to be able to convince people about the whole Monty Hall. Do you know the Monty Hall problem? Yeah, I do. Refresh it's, my like, it's like three doors. It's like three it's, it's, it's three doors, and you pick one of them, but you don't get to open it. Like, there's only a prize behind one of the doors or whatever. There's three doors. You pick one of them, but you don't open it. And then the host of the show says, I'm going to show you what was behind one of the doors yeah. that you didn't pick. Do, do you want to switch? Do you want to switch? And then, like, people think that they, you know, that they either should or shouldn't switch, uh, and or it doesn't matter or whatever. And the actual answer is you should always switch, and people don't like that. And... You have to come up with that seems counterintuitive. You have to come up with clever ways to to convince them of it, Um, and the clever ways to convince them of it are are basically scientific ways, like the ways you think about. Like one of the one of the most fun ways to think about it is to to uh, to reinforce the idea that the host knows where the thing is, and the host is always going to show you a door that doesn't have a prize behind it. Right? You have to you have to tell people that and like really get them to understand what that means. Like the host the host has perfect knowledge. The host knows where the prize is. Right? So when the host opens a door, the host is always going to open a door that doesn't have a prize behind it, right? right. And so one of the, one of the best ways to explain this to people is to say, imagine there are a thousand doors. You pick one, don't get to open it. The host opens 998 other doors that have nothing behind them. Should you switch? <laughs> and it's like, well, what do you think you successfully chose one out of the 998, uh, you know, 999 Oh, it greatly ones. improves your chances. It's like having more lottery numbers. It's, it's, by, by trying to say that you shouldn't switch, you're saying, I got the one in 999 chance. Like, I was right when I had those odds. I No, no, thank you. I, I, I will not require any other chances. I will stay where yeah, I am. I, thank anyway, you very there's, much. There's a million different ways you can explain this. But, but, but because it's counterintuitive, people rebel against it. And because to actually explain it using math, you have to like, it's like the past discussions, like in order to actually have an argument with someone, you need to break down, break them down to their fundamental assumptions about reality and build them back up. Right. And it could take years. You have to actually te- teach people probability till they believe, like, de- you know, teach them basics of numbers and the number line and number theory and addition and subtraction. And at every step of the way, they have to really believe that two is bigger than one and that one plus one equals two. They have to really believe with every fiber of their being, you have to show it them sideways, backwards, all the consequences of it, understanding how number systems work and gradually claw your way up from there all the way up through the math that gets you into probability. And if every step of the way they truly believed it and understand it and it can prove it um, and understand what it's really saying and what it's not saying, then you can explain to them using probability. But, but you can't do that for regular people, so you have to do like the, what if I assume this is not true and take the same experiment to an absurd degree to the point where it will tickle your common sense things to say, oh, okay, well, if they open 999, 998 other doors, like, am I really saying that actually... I happened to pick the one out of the 999 or now that it's now, what are the odds of that one that he didn't open is the one that has it? Because if, but by sticking to your door, you're saying, no, I think I got it the first time, <laughs> you know, despite that, the that totally, totally changes. Yeah. It. Anyway, um, as you alluded to earlier, one of the more interesting problems is forget about what's true and what's not true. How do you convince other human beings of anything? Right, which is a mm-hmm. totally different problem than figuring out what's true. That's, that's the problem. So over, over here, there's the big there's the big pile of things that represent our best information about the world as expressed through science. And over here 
is trying to tell or persuade people that what that means and that it is the case. No, not even – you don't have to be trying to convince them of the truth. Just pick an idea at random. True, false, doesn't matter what it is. If your goal is, here, here's the idea that I want people to believe this, your job is to make them believe that. It doesn't matter – in fact, very often it's easier if it's not true, but it doesn't because the true stuff is often very weird, especially scientific stuff. It doesn't matter what the idea is. That is a different problem. That is a problem of like your challenge is figure out how to convince people of this thing. You don't care what this thing is, like in the most sort of mercenary type of cynical way. You don't care whether it's true or not. You don't care what the consequences of it are not. Like that this is an important skill. Because the reason it's an important skill is if you if you're really good at this skill, you are a powerful person. Um, then you can choose, because again, it doesn't matter what you're convincing people of. You can choose things that you want people to believe. And because you're good at getting people to believe things, you can make them believe it. If you can convince a lot of people that they should all vote for you for president, th- yeah. that is an incredible amount of power. Like, pick any set of facts you want. Again, and if you're trying to work for good, if you can convince people that you know global warming is a real thing, you could help save millions of lives or keep Miami from being underwater, or maybe you do want to do that or whatever. Like, there's you have yeah. tremendous power if you can, but convincing people of things has nothing to do with what's true. What you have to then understand is how human beings work, everything about society, culture. It's an incredibly difficult problem. But the power that comes along with being good at that, particularly having that skill, is tremendous. Um, not as powerful as being able to. Uh, understand that when you throw the ball it shrinks because that has much farther recent consequences but uh, i think the two have to go hand in hand so when you're thinking about this problem you have to think about you want to get together the people who are good at finding out the truth get those people together with the people who are good at convincing people of things and hopefully that's a virtuous cycle where we find out more and more about the nature of reality and we're able to convince people that that is the case based on the best knowledge we have at the time very rarely do those and, things and it helps it helps if it i mean this is state the obvious, says John's little friend. It does help a lot if whatever being presented not only is not antithetical to what you think, believe, or see, but feels something like proof of what you'd always suspected. This, this is that not fair to say? It, regardless of what these actual demographic rules, I'm trying to avoid politics here, but there's all kinds of things that like we 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 know this kind of thing much more clearly than we know that kind of thing. But people are going to be very much more likely. They talked about in, in this in this article in the Atlantic um, about persuading people, talking about basically testing people with a very interesting experiment with getting people telling people about an event, getting them to do a, a different task on a computer, and then come back and be able to remember it. And there was, if memory serves, there was a very interesting preponderance of people remembering it in such a way that the aboriginal people in the story were usually the bad guys or, like, were responsible for what went wrong. And that there's this certain kind of, you know, we, our pre-existing, if you like, wiring for how we think about the way the world works. And so when people present you with something that comports with what you think, believe, reckon, see, or hope, that's going to be a much easier sell regardless – I mean, that you've got to get past that first portcullis before you ever have an opportunity to even, like, tickle somebody's thinking bone. All right, that's the that's the trick. It's like, it's like being in debate club where you're given a position, you have to take pro or con, and you don't get to pick which is pro or con. Like, that's that's why yeah, I feel yeah, like yeah. to be the best at this, you really you really need to treat it as, like, you don't care about the ideas. You just got to figure out. How, and be, because humans and culture and everything is so complicated, you're never going to have enough understanding. Like, it's not like chemistry or physics where... 
you feel like you can get down to you can get a model you can get a model that uh that's that supports observations uh given some parameters whatever you know we've got really small things and really big things we can't really bring those two together but like got a model that works within a known set we have no model for people that it's just it's just too complicated it's too we don't understand it well enough people are really complicated and we don't understand them uh, we don't understand the emergent system that is the humans so everything is kind of heuristics and and experiments on a broad scale that gives you trends and ideas like but you never it's not it's not a, not an exact science as i say like so that's <laughs> that's why it's a, a such a, a a difficult skill to have and why again another reason why people are frustrated like oh this experiment showed this or does it really show that or what think what about the experimenters or let, let me see the film that they showed or what you know the people that they picked were from the wrong whatever like and you're not controlling for that like it just goes around and around. Sorry, there's a lot of reasons why, you know, scientists sneer at sociologists and stuff like that. Because it's like you, you're you so far away from having a grasp on anything. You're just really, like, groping in the dark. And 50% of your supposed science is, like, culture and fads. And then you just come right back at the other scientists and be like, oh, like, there's no fads in physics? Like, you know, and right, complain right, about right. where they get their funding from. So we can just all yell at each other. Yes, we're all humans. It's all a flawed system. But this, this is all we can do. Did you ever figure out where Cardini puts the cards? I don't know. I mean, if everything's a simulation, maybe they just appear in his, his coat. He's the only guy who had it figured out. <laughs> we got to figure this out. It dogs me. Mm. So you, anyway, uh, I hope you're not concerned about whether we're living in a simulation. I, 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 I'm I, not. I, I'm I would, not. I don't think that's going to uh, give you any results that affect your day-to-day life. Well, that's, that's good to know. You know, I'll, I'll ruminate on it. But uh, no, I, I thought... I mean, what it, what it caught my eye about it was obviously first thing that catches my eye is wow, that sounds crazy. Uh, it sounds crazy, and it's something you know. There's lots of jokes about it, but you know he was putting it very seriously. But I have to admit, in the same way that I enjoy time travel movies and occasionally reading science fiction or seeing science fiction movies, the first half of science fiction movies, I am very intrigued by a brain bender like that. So I mean, to me, it's not even it's it's. To me, it's not the weather we're living in a simulation. It's like sort of like I'm repeating what you said. But the, my interest in that is like, huh, how did you come up with that idea as a serious person? And if you were given unlimited resources in an infinite timeline, as John Syracuse says, how would you go about knowing if it's even there? That's the part that gets my brain a little bit yeah. bent in a stimulating way. Yeah, no, I, I think that's what we all want to see is like, we want to see what they come up with. Like, what are, how are you testing for this? And then we all just want to tell them how their test is stupid and it's not actually showing what they think it's showing. But it's it's... Very difficult to think about. The other, the other one is like a you know same, similar thing. Are we living in a hologram? For I've read some article about like the the crap around the outside of a black hole. Like the matter goes into a black hole, but the information in, inherent in that is not destroyed. It's still the, the information is still uh, like a still, like a like a bathtub ring still exists. I forget what it was. I don't know the terminology, but the, all the information of the matter that goes into the black hole still exists. It's not like it it, it left or whatever, and it's all concentrated in this region and so uh, like a hologram where the information from the original picture is encoded in the material and anyway it was like it's where all the hey we're all living in hologram stuff comes from that's like a misunderstanding of the scientific the actual science behind it and for one brief moment in reading some article somewhere i thought i glimpsed oh that's where people keep getting this we're all in a hologram idea from and actually it's saying something very different but the different thing that's saying is also actually really cool um and because we have this observation of the scientific uh, of, of this phenomenon and our theories tell us that this should be the case. And we're like, that's kind of neat that we've got 
all this information smeared out over this area from things that previously existed, but it's like it's not gone, it's still there. And if you were to project through it as if you're projecting a hologram, you would reconstitute everything that's there. So therefore, our entire universe could be all squished up into the, some other thing and something projecting through it. Like, anyway, I, I lost the thread on it long ago, but it was another one of those uh, cases where I'm where the the you know technology section of the news story hey these scientists says we're all living in a hologram hologram is like <laughs> that thing where tupac appears on stage even though he's dead like that's the story three minutes of and, footage of tupac and, and you're like how does that you know how does that come out you could, it's easier to understand like the old brand fat ones because this is like whatever and he's junk science but but like the one with the hologram where did that story come from and it's the same case where like to actually explain it I would have to know a lot more about the foundations. I would need to, you know, go to school for seven more years and then finally go, okay, now I see. But there was an article that tried to explain it. Like, here's what they're actually saying. And here's why this news story came out of this thing. Um, and I thought that was pretty neat. So I, I always look for stuff like that. Cause you know, we don't all have time to be broken down to our fundamentals and built back up so that we can truly understand things. That's why we need people to explain things to us and hopefully not have them totally mangle it in the process. <laughs> During World War II, President Roosevelt signed an executive order to imprison Japanese Americans in concentration camps. American citizens who had done nothing wrong lost their jobs, their businesses, and their freedom. Families were torn apart, and children grew up behind barbed wire fences. Today, Japanese American imprisonment during World War II is considered a stain on the legacy of American history. In 1988, President Reagan paid reparations to innocent Japanese Americans who were wrongly imprisoned and issued a formal apology. When we look back at that history today, it is tempting to wonder, how could this have happened? How could we have been so scared of our neighbors that we locked them up? How did the land of the free get it so wrong. Donald Trump says that when he's president, an armed deportation force will occupy American cities. Trump's deportation task force will investigate innocent people and round them up into concentration camps. Trump says he'll ban all Muslims from entering our country. Donald Trump's plan has once again caused neighbors to fear one another and turned Americans against our own people. This election is a test. Can we learn from the mistakes of our past and reject Trump's cruel, unconstitutional prison camps? Or are we doomed to repeat history? This November, the choice should be easy for all patriotic Americans. We must vote against American concentration camps and we must vote against Donald Trump. The Nuisance Committee is responsible for the content of this advertising.